Today we're going to look at a passage from Hebrews chapter 12 that talks about Mount Zion. Now, I know that we sing songs like, we're marching to Zion, or we shall assemble on the mountain. But how oftentimes do we actually study passages of the Bible that kind of inform songs like that, that give us those images that we can look at and, and understand, well, what does it mean about Zion? What, what does Zion even mean? Which, by the way, I'll go ahead and I'll tell you this before we get started. Uh, Zion is kind of a loose term that really talks about where God is, specifically where God was going to place his name. Now, for the Hebrews, that place was Jerusalem, and specifically the temple in Jerusalem. But what about us as Christians? What does Zion mean to us? That's where we learn from Hebrews chapter 12. Now, before we get just directly into Mount Zion, let's back up just a little bit, a few verses, and, and let's see uh, everything that the Hebrew writer wants us to understand uh, about this passage. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, a little bit of backstory right here. This is, this is what we get. We are told, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see God. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Now, this passage, there's a lot for us to, to see here and a lot of examples that are already being used. And by the way, the Hebrews, um, the, the book of Hebrews, I love it. It's a wonderful book, and it really helps us to get a lot of meaning, I believe, uh, from the Hebrew Bible and better understand it in light of what Jesus has done for us. So this first call that, uh, that we are told to do is to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. How much do we think about that? About being at peace with everyone? At least whenever, whatever effort we can do to be at peace with people, are we doing those things? Or do we sometimes kind of, you know, maybe, uh, well, do the opposite of that? and do something that causes us to not live in peace. We are called to live in peace with everyone, to make every single effort that we can, and to be holy. And, and we see this phrase in verse 14, that without holiness, no one will see God, or no one will see the Lord. Now, 
maybe at some point in history, I will do like a sermon series or something on these different things that are talked about in the scriptures that say, okay, well, this is what you have to do in order to see the Lord, or this is what you have to do in order to uh, to please the Lord. Like in Hebrews chapter 11, we saw that without faith, uh, we, we see there in Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Right here now we're told, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we have phrases that appear all throughout uh, the New Testament that tell us Look, this is the type of people that we have to be. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to turn those into checklists, but guess what? If something like this, um, like holiness is mentioned, without holiness, no one will see God or no one will see the Lord. Do you want to see the Lord? Well, if you want to see the Lord, then we need to, to live holy. We need to be people who are holy. We also see in verse 15, talking about this grace of God. What does that grace of God look like? Well, we are told to, to remain within this grace uh, of God and to not let these, this bitter root that's mentioned right here grow up among us. And then the example is used as to what a bitter root might look like. It might be like someone who would be sexually immoral or perhaps godless like Esau. Now, we don't get too much of an, of an example of that first thing, but what about godless like Esau? Now, when you look in, in, uh, in verse 16, you know, I believe it's important for us to see that Esau is used here as an example, but he's not a positive example. He's not a good example. Um, he's not the child of promise. If you remember, he comes in the uh, in the family of Abraham. So you have Abraham, who was given all these promises. So it's Abraham, Isaac, and then we know the next name would be Jacob. Well, the first one in line was actually Esau, but Esau gave up his birthright. He gave up the right that he had by birth and he gave that to Jacob. That's why we call it the sons of Israel instead of the sons of Esau. Um, Esau had sons, but they're not the ones that we follow in the story of the Bible. Jacob is the one that he inherited the birthright. He is the one that we get to the children of Israel. So Esau was the one who gave up um, his birthright. He gave up what God was going to be giving to him. And what did he give it up for? A single meal. I mean, I need, I know it just it sounds crazy to me, and it probably sounds crazy to you. But yet, time and time again throughout history, what have we seen people give up the blessings of God for? Sometimes it's even far less than a single meal. A meal could at least nourish you for a time being. Sometimes people give up the the birthrights of God for things that can't even sustain you even momentarily. So now we get, after we uh, take our eyes off of Esau for a little bit, let, let's follow in this Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who, whose name was changed to Israel, and that's where we get the, the children of Israel, the sons of Israel. Now we see an example is given about the children of Israel. Verses 18 through 21. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So now we see this mountain that the children of Israel go to. And this mountain, of course, would be Mount Sinai. And there on Mount Sinai, they received the Ten Commandments. They saw this whole, uh, this burning with fire, this darkness, this gloom, all these different things. They couldn't touch the mountain. All these statements were mentioned. 
They received the Ten Commandments there. They received the covenant there. That, that was the place of the covenant. And we see images about fire and, and fear being stated. I mean, even Moses himself said, I'm trembling with fear. That's recorded for us in verse, verse 21. However, that's not the type of mountain that we as Christians come to. And here, yes, this mountain that the children of Israel went to, that was a physical mountain. The mountain that we come to is more of a spiritual one, and we see these images. That's why we, we sing about it in poetic terms in, in our songs uh, that we sing. Now, the mountain that we come to is not Mount Sinai. It's Mount Zion. In Mount Zion, it's connected with Israel. It's connected with the promised land, connected with Jerusalem, the, the name of the Lord dwelling there. And it's also connected with joy. Now, we don't see it just yet in this passage, but we do in this next slide. So let's go there in the, the next few verses. Verses 22 through 24. Now we get for us as Christians. What have we come to? Verses 22 through 24 of Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Notice how Mount Zion is described right here. It's described as, yes, all those other terms that I used uh, on the last slide, but Mount Zion right here in these verses, it's referred to as the city of the living God. I mean, just pause, take that in, recognize how wonderful of a thought that is. Mount Zion that we have come to is the city of the living God. And we also see it's the heavenly Jerusalem. We're not talking about the physical Jerusalem. Okay, you don't have to go to Mount Zion over on the other side of the world. You don't have to go to, to Jerusalem. That's not what it's about. It's, it's this heavenly Jerusalem. What does this heavenly Jerusalem look like? Or I guess another way of looking at it is, or asking that question is, who is there? Who is at this heavenly Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem that we get in the New Testament? Well, we see in verse 22 that angels are mentioned right there. Angels are gathered in joyful assembly. They're thousands upon thousands. And this is a really um, neat thing that we see in this passage because, you know, it's in this heavenly Jerusalem, it's not just the church who's there. And, you know, sometimes we, we kind of think about the kingdom of God and, and maybe we even... Um, you know, think about ourselves as, as entering into the kingdom and the church being the kingdom. But if that is our view of the kingdom of God, if that is our view of the heavenly Jerusalem, we are looking way too narrowly focused. We, we need to, to look out a little bit broader and recognize, look, heavenly Jerusalem is not just about the church. It's not even just about all of the human beings who are faithful, who've ever lived. It is about that. But it's also about these angels, these spirit beings. So it's not just the human beings, it's also these spiritual beings all gathered together. Now, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like and how that's going to be, but I can tell you one thing, it is going to be absolutely wonderful. And this is what we are described as coming to. In fact, Christians 2,000 years ago were described as coming to this like already. That, that's what he says. It's because it's a spiritual place. We have come in this spiritual community, this spiritual assembly that includes angels. In verse 23, it also includes the church, the church of the firstborn. That's a reference to Jesus Christ being the firstborn of those who are going to be raised from the dead. And because we also see 
um, you know, the first fruits of those who are raised from the dead, uh, the firstborn of all creation. All these things are, are stated with Jesus Christ himself, and those blessings are carried over to us. We know that because he is this unique son of God, we can be called sons of God, children of God as well. And we also see that the church, their names are written in heaven. Did you know that if you're part of the church, your name is written in heaven? It's a pretty cool thing. It's a really cool thing whenever you recognize this Mount Zion, this heavenly Jerusalem is mentioned. We also see that uh, others are there as well. Of course, God, but it is specifically stated right here in verse 23 that God. And what is stated about God right here is that he is this judge. And so he is there, of course. We also see another thing that's mentioned. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's interesting. So, you know, we see that, yes, this is not just about the church. It's also about all those who are faithful, all the, the faithful children of Israel. All of those even who were faithful to God before Israel was born. Because guess what? They're there too. We, we are all there. This is the complete assembly of all of the children of God. All who are faithful to him and all who follow him. Now in the New Testament, there is something very wonderful that has happened. And that's because that's brought up here in verse 24. Jesus is also there. What role does he play in all of this? He is the mediator of this new covenant. And how did he, how did he become this mediator, this go-between, the one who, who mended our relationship with our Heavenly Father? That's also mentioned in verse 24. It's this sprinkled blood that is there. The blood of Jesus is what washes us clean. The blood of Jesus is what brought in this new covenant. The blood of Jesus is what makes him the mediator. He is our mediator through the blood of uh, through his blood. And this passage here in Hebrews 12, it continues on a little bit more about this image about Mount Zion, and it continues with a warning. Let's listen to this warning. Verses 25 through 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Here we have this warning. This warning is still about this, this example. We see time and time again in the book of Hebrews that something from the Hebrew people will teach something um, to us as Christians. And we see that we live under a new covenant. We live under, in many ways, really in just about all ways, better times. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. Now right here, this warning has to do with, do not refuse him who speaks. I love that phrase. Um, uh, thinking about God, thinking about Jesus Christ as him who speaks. That's what the Bible is. It's the word of God. You know, sometimes you might hear people who, who are just thinking, oh, well, you know, if only I, I uh, could hear God, only if God would just, you know, be very plain and just tell me exactly what I need to do, then I would do it. He's already done that. He's already spoken. He's spoken to us through his word. He, he's given that and it's been recorded for all time. It's been tested. 
you know, I would almost be a little bit hesitant if, if each one of us just kind of, you know, heard the voice of God and, um, you know, individually, and then we just kind of followed what, whatever, because we might see some, some weird things, you know, not every voice that we might hear would, would always come from God, but God has spoken to us in the Bible. We have this written word of God that has been tested and it, it has been beneficial to generations for thousands of years of people who have followed God. We do not need to refuse him who speaks. Well, see, this contrast about uh, God speaking uh, on earth and, and this uh, uh, the one who warned them, you know, uh, on earth and whenever whenever God uh, came on that mountain and, and uh, those warnings were given through, uh, through Moses here, um, we see that they refused to listen, at least fully, and they did not escape. That's what verse 25 says. But now, what about the voice from heaven? You know, if, if that's how it was about uh, the one who would warn them on earth, what about from heaven? How much less will we escape? What will it look like for us? And the answer is not exactly given, but it's kind of implied that, look, if they couldn't escape, we're not going to be, uh, we're not going to be able to either. We've got to listen to this warning. Do not refuse him who speaks. And then we get in verse 27, this interesting language about shaken. I guess it starts in verse 26 even uh, about shaken these things and the, these what's going to be shaken, what's going to be um, kind of taken away. It's the things that are created. Now, there's going to be some remaining things. And the, and the difference and the importance for us to see is where do we put our faith? Do we put our faith in just the created things? Because, look, they're going to be shaken up. They're going to be turned upside down and, and kind of done away with at some point. But what about the things that remain? Is that what our faith is on? Because that's what it should be on, is the things that are going to remain. And we see that this is this warning. This is this call. This call to come to Mount Zion and what this assembly looks like. So as we as Christians think about and read about Mount Zion right here in Hebrews 12, I'm going to give us a, a summary of kind of all these different things that we've looked at. We see this call to live in peace and holiness as we come to Mount Zion. When we come to Mount Zion, we encounter the blood of Jesus and we are called and invited to listen to him who speaks. We are also called in verse 28, something I didn't, didn't mention whenever we were on that slide, but I want you to, to recognize it right now. We are called to worship God, to be thankful to God and to worship him acceptably with reverence and awe. And we see the final statement in verse in chapter 12 is that our God is a consuming fire. We're called to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And this language of fire is mentioned. Now, interestingly enough, all of that sounds very similar to Mount Sinai, the, the ones that children of Israel were at the foot of. And we see that, you know, while there is, a, as an, there is an extreme contrast between the physical Mount Sinai and the spiritual Mount Zion, we see that there's actually several similarities. It's because our God is the same God as he always been in both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. This language is similar to Mount Sinai. The people who exist right now are similar to the people that existed around the time of Mount Sinai. There's a difference, though. The difference is the blood of Jesus. 
It makes everything different. It's what allows our assembly described the assembly of Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, sorry, the assembly of uh, this heavenly Jerusalem to be a joyful assembly that's stated in verse 22. And this rejoicing can come because of God's plan for salvation. Salvation, not just of one people groups, but of all groups, all who come to our God. Salvation comes to us through the blood of Jesus. I hope that you've experienced that salvation. And if you haven't, why not do something about it today? Why not come to Jesus? If there's anything that we can do, reach out to us as a church and we will help you in any way that we can. I stood gazing at the mountain, refreshed by the falling rain. The yellow reminds me of sunlight, the red a crimson stain. Someday I'd like to meet the artist and change. Talented. Uh...